For those who do not know me, I've been a Leafs fan for about 55 of the last 66 years of my life. And this year before the playoffs, I posted a picture on Facebook. And under that picture, I wrote this, hurry up and win the cup. I'm getting old, go Leafs. From my fellow Leaf fans on the fan page, I got all sorts of support and positive comments. From some of my friends on my main page, I heard things like, who are they? Montreal's farm team? That, and that was my cousin. If I were a Leafs fan, I would wear a mask too. Maybe you should make arrangements for some Leaf players to be pallbearers at your funeral so they can let you down one more time. I used to be his friend. I do not spend much time on Facebook, mainly to see pictures of family and friends, to see what people are doing who are far away. Recently, though, I found the comments on Facebook to be disconcerting, especially from people who are followers of Jesus. I have found some of their comments to be disrespectful, unloving, and divisive, not reflective of the heart of Jesus, especially towards those who are political leaders. Now, I might be a little old-fashioned. I was raised in a generation where respect was really important. Even if you disagreed with a political leader, you still respected the political leader. I didn't call, and I don't call somebody who is our Prime Minister Trudeau. I call him Prime Minister Trudeau. And I believe it's a sign of respect to the office when we speak in that manner. We live in a culture of division. It seems that people feel the need to choose sides. There's been a loss of collaboration, of tolerance, and even decency. If you are a follower of Jesus, you live in two kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap though. So 
explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So, God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So, how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So, we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so, what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and... They kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So, in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming 
to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. So Jesus' followers are called to be like Jesus, to live on earth as citizens of earth and citizens of heaven. Over the next five weeks, Pastor John and Pastor Austin and myself are going to explore what it means to be citizens of heaven and citizens of earth, to learn to live well as Canadians and as followers of Jesus. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're exploring who Jesus is, this will be helpful. It'll give you insight into what Jesus considered to be critical to living well and impacting others in a life-changing way. Jesus taught his disciples this, that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And followers of Jesus over the last 2,000 years have responded to this particular teaching in two extreme ways. The first way is isolation, separating ourselves fully disconnecting, or trying to avoid the culture we live in as much as possible. Now, the danger of this approach is that we have little or no impact on our culture. Jesus cannot use us to bring about his purposes in the world we live in. And the second extreme approach has been immersion, to live according to the values and priorities of the culture. What the culture considers important and strives towards we consider important and strive towards. And the danger in this is that we live no differently from the world around us. Again, we lose the possibility of impacting our culture with the power of Jesus. Now, there is a third way to apply this principle, this teaching that Jesus gave us, that we are in the world, but not of the world. And that's called influence, to impact our community with the love the light, and the life of Jesus. Now, let me just say that if you are a person who is exploring what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you've not really made a step towards being in relationship with Jesus Christ, let me encourage you to begin your journey or to continue your journey with reading the Gospel of John. That's in the second part of the Bible. It's the fourth book in, and it's written about what Jesus did and who Jesus was. And John uses these three words, love, light, and life, over and over again to describe who Jesus was and what Jesus did and what he called his disciples to be. Jesus calls us to live in our world with his values, his priorities, and his purposes. So what is important to Jesus should be important to us. So what are his values and priorities and purposes? What's important to Jesus? Over this series, we will look very specifically at what it is that is important to Jesus and how we should be living as citizens of heaven and citizens of earth, as citizens of Canada. Jesus summarized all his values, all his priorities, and all his purposes with one phrase— being a loving servant. Now, there's an interesting story about Jesus and his disciples in the second part of the Bible, the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. 
Jesus is approached by the mother of two of his disciples, James and John. And she kneels before Jesus as a sign of respect. He's a teacher, a rabbi. And she asks this favor. Can my sons sit beside you when you are king? Now, historically, when anybody sat beside a king, an emperor or pharaoh, you can read that in the life of Joseph in the Old Testament, that means that you share the power of the king, the emperor, the pharaoh. Now, before I continue, picture this. James and John are standing a bit far back from their mother. The mother's kneeling before Jesus. They're watching their mother. They're watching Jesus to see how he's going to respond to this request. I don't know if you've ever watched the Goldbergs, but the mom interferes in the kids' lives all the time. She often goes to the school when they're being punished and convinces the principal or the teacher that they shouldn't be punished. She often goes there and makes requests on their behalf. That's kind of what happened here. James and John went to their mom, and they said, this is what they basically said, Mommy, would you go and ask Jesus to let us sit beside him when he comes into his kingdom? Now, Jesus looks over the mom's head. She's still kneeling, so he's looking over the mom's head. And he talks directly to James and John. And he says this to them. Can you suffer the way I'm going to suffer? Now, James and John respond quite quickly. No problem. We can do that. They had no idea what Jesus meant. They had no idea what Jesus was going to go through. And Jesus says to them, good, because you are going to suffer, but I do not have the power or the authority to grant who sits beside me. So, okay, and what happens next is that the other disciples hear about this request, and they're ticked. They're angry with James and John. And before a fight can start, Jesus steps in. He takes advantage of what's going on for a teaching opportunity. And he says to his disciples, you know that those in power rule over you. In other words, people who rule, rule with power. I was a political science major, and one of my political science professors made this statement about political power. He said, it doesn't matter whether you're in a democracy and a, or a dictatorship. This is common and true of all political power. If you do not have power, you do what it takes to get it. If you have power, you do what it takes to keep it. Jesus said, this is not how you rule in my kingdom. If you want to be great in my kingdom, then you must be a servant. If you want to be first in my kingdom, then you must be a slave. Jesus then teaches them that he came not to be served, but to serve. And they are to follow Jesus' example. We are to follow Jesus' example. In fact, Jesus said, if you are my student, my pupil, and I'm your teacher, I expect you to live your life the way I live my life. So how is this relevant to a follower of Jesus? When we interact with our culture to have influence, to impact our culture in the name and power of Jesus, we must be committed to live as Jesus lived, to be loving servants. My guiding principle throughout my life, at least from the 70s, has been this, to count others more important than yourself. Now, this is found in the book of Philippians. And one day back in the 70s, I was 
reading the scripture. It's the primary way that God speaks to me. And I was reading it, and I was reading the book of Philippians in the New Testament. And Paul had wrote this, count others more important than yourself. Now, I'm not a mystical person. I don't often hear like a direct voice from God. It's happened to me a few times, but it's very rare. I have mystical friends, and I celebrate the fact that they hear from God in a different way than I do. I primarily hear God through the scriptures. And as I was reading this verse, count others more important than yourself, it is like there was a person in the room next to me, and I heard this voice say, Wayne, you are not doing that. You are selfish instead of selfless. And it became my commitment to Christ to practice this counting others more important than myself throughout my life. Now, I'll admittedly say I have not practiced this perfectly. I still do not practice it perfectly. But every day I surrender and submit to the Holy Spirit, asking him to enable me and empower me to count others more important than myself, to be a loving servant. Right after that principle, the author, Paul, in this letter to the Philippians says this, have the same attitude as Jesus. And what did he say? He said that Jesus did not cling to his right to be equal with God, but he gave up his rights. He gave up all that he was as God other than the very nature of himself, which he couldn't give up, to become a human being and to die for our sins. And if we are truly committed to Jesus, we will take his example seriously. To let go of anything that prevents us from being a loving servant in our actions, in our attitudes, and in our motivations. Now, something that has helped me to be front-brained about how to live my life as a follower of Jesus, how to be a loving servant, is this phrase, I am. I am my actions, what I do. I am my attitudes, how I do it. And I am my motivations, why I do it. I am a loving servant. Now, if you read through the life of Jesus, he spoke to us both how we live externally, in other words, our actions, what we do, and how we live internally, our motivations and our attitudes. Now, this is what I've learned in my many years as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I received Jesus, I accepted him, I committed my life to him when I was, when I was eight years old. And this is what I've learned over the years. I have learned that it's much easier for me to pay attention to the things I do on the outside, the external behavior, the actions. It's much easier, much more in my face and seems to be pointed out by, of course, other people as well. Figuring out how I'm doing internally is a work of the Holy Spirit. How my attitudes line up with being a loving servant, how my motivations line up with being a loving servant is really the work of the Holy Spirit, because that's a much deeper work, because we live inside out. I know that I can do something, and it looks like I'm doing it really well on the outside, and I might be doing all the right things on the outside, but there's some things in my life, my attitude, I might be grumbling as I'm doing it, or my motivation might be self-centered. Nobody else around me, around me knows that. All they see is, hey, Wayne's a pretty good guy, but they don't see my my attitudes. They don't see my motivations. They don't see why I'm doing something or how I'm doing it. They just see what I'm doing. The Spirit of God, Jesus, was really concerned about why we do what we do. 
and how we do what we do. And that is a much deeper work that needs to take place in each of our lives. And I, every day, am working on that. Now, let me be blunt. I, over the years, have been concerned about the direction that followers of Jesus have gone in. I am concerned looking on Facebook, listening to media, having conversations with people, people who are followers of Jesus, that they are much more impacted by what they read or hear or see on media or online than they are by the teachings of Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are wanting to live your life and it reflects and radiates him, then you need to pay attention to what he says as your primary way of living. His values, his priorities, his purposes need to be our values and priorities and purposes. How he lived, we need to live. One of the things I hear over and over again from people, and I just had this conversation recently, is I don't want to be told what to do. I have rights. You know, Jesus had rights, but he gave up those rights because he considered his responsibility to give his life for us to be more important than his right to be God. And if we're following Jesus, we give up our rights. I don't mean that we give our rights up as citizens of of Canada, but what's important for us should always be, always forefront should be our responsibilities and to pay attention to how our life impacts or influences those around us. So I ask you, please, please pay attention to whether your actions, your attitudes and motivations reflect being a loving servant as Jesus lived his life as a loving servant. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for each one who is listening. Thank you that you enable us as follower of Jesus to be empowered and enabled by your Spirit to be loving servants. Enable us to give up anything that prevents us from being loving servants, to reflecting and radiating the values, the priorities, and purposes of Jesus. Thank you again that we do this in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ through his Spirit. Amen.